Alright, cool. So let's hop into something different, I guess. Everything's a little bit different, but this uh, has a whole new field here with posthumanism. So I did my masters on this stuff, uh, and to be honest, I still don't fully know what it is. Because every every posthumanist thinker, posthuman thinker, uh, gives something of a different definition of what the posthuman is, of what the human was, and how this uh, shift actually comes comes about. So today, it'll be Rosie Bray Doty and the posthuman. So this is um, a Deleuzian and Guattarian uh, type of posthumanism. So what I mean by that, for those people that perhaps aren't familiar, is that um, well, not only do they draw upon Deleuze and, or does uh, she draw upon Deleuze and Guattari pretty often, uh, but the whole thing really resonates with many of the theses that, or many of the ideas really, that uh, Deleuze and Guattari put forth in Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus, notably ideas like deterritorialization, which Rosie Bray Doty takes as a positive thing here, something that is uh, to be mobilized in favor of falling or resting oneself, resting oneself from the, um, from the oppression of uh, subjectivity or the oppression of identity in favor of new possibilities or whatever in this kind of rhizomatic. So rhizomatic, you know, I'll give a quick definition of that. Um, rhizomatic being the kind of like um, indeterminate beingness, so a kind of anti-essentialist uh, politics. And yeah, so I guess that's, you know, really that's that. Uh, so this book starts with a pretty good or important introduction, but I'll just kind of give the, you know, gist of it with a, um, a certain passage here. So in some ways, she says, my interest in the post-human is directly proportional to the sense of frustration I feel about the human, all too human, resources and limitations that frame our collective and personal levels of intensity and creativity. This is why the issue of subjectivity is so central to this book. This is why uh, we need we need to devise new social, ethical, and discursive schemes of subject formation to match the profound transformations we are undergoing. That means that we need to learn to think differently about ourselves. I take the post-human predicament as an opportunity to empower the pursuit of alternative schemes of thought, knowledge, and self-representation. The post-human condition urges us to think critically and creatively about who and what we are actually in the process of becoming. So this is set against the backdrop of, you know, advanced industrial capitalism or late capitalism that, in a sense, that grounds things, right? That um, sells people identities that they can then, you know, are only able to uh, justify by consuming those identities and it creates this kind of vicious cycle. So it's about really getting out of that state of mind in favor of new possibilities. So here we go into chapter one then. So this thing called the human that we can say existed at some point uh, is, is a creation, of course. You know, and we know this from thinkers like Foucault especially. Uh, the human or man is that thing that came about at a certain stage in human development and, as Foucault says, has, if not already, uh, is in the process of disappearing. So she starts out chapter one by saying that 
At the start of it all, there is he, the classical idea of man, formulated first by Protagoras as the measure of all things, later renewed in the Italian Renaissance as a universal model, and represented in da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. So an ideal of bodily perfection which, in keeping with the classical dictum, men sana in corporo sano, doubles up as a set of mental discursive and spiritual values. So I think that's pretty fair. Uh, that when we are working with this thing called the post-human, we are relying on this construction of the human to have existed at one point. And this is a pretty fair definition. And, you know, it would alter a bit across time where those people post-enlightenment, the kind of, um, I guess, just the enlightenment thinkers uh, or the humanist thinkers or whatever would have a kind of a different definition and would rely on other forms of subjectivity uh, kind of setting the stage for a liberal, you know, 20th or 19th, 20th and 21st century human. Uh, but what, what she gives us here, more of a historical account, of course, is an interesting point of departure and I think a good one. So as she, she locates it in the, um, the, actually in the 18th and 19th centuries, really, uh, how the human was the kind of highest form. Of, of being on the planet. So of course, this is a very problematic claim, especially if you consider, you know, who was considered human, which at that time, and many ways still today, uh, you know, certain people of different races, genders for that matter, uh, wouldn't even be considered human. So human was a very selective turn, term. And there's actually, you know, and she doesn't really get into this here. And I don't, I don't know who really does. And that's a little bit of a gap in my knowledge. Uh, but when this idea of the human became applicable to all, right? So you had the Declaration of Human Rights, which at the time didn't, you know, excluded X, Y, and Z people. Uh, but when did the idea of the human really come about? It, it's an interesting question. So coming out of the development of this thing called the human in the 18th and 19th centuries was not only the foundation for a kind of liberal individual that could exist as an autonomous self within the world. Right? And that would certainly resonate with the ideas put forward by Locke. So Locke would say something like, uh, every single person has a sort of obligation to, to take, in a sense, and the role of the state is to, I guess, mediate the possible uh, struggles that might come about from that. So between two people, right? So the state's responsibility would be to pro like adequately assess for whom each plot of land or for whom uh, did anything belong, but it's still the maintenance, at least in a kind of a Lockean formulation of a pre, you know, prehistoric kind of individualistic or what I will say, quote unquote, primitive way of being where, you know, it's dog eat dog world. Uh, you have to look after yourself because no one else is going to do it for you. So it not only set the stage for that kind of individual, as Rosie Rayoti tells us, but also set the stage for what she says is a historically developed uh, civilizational model, which shaped a certain idea of Europe as coinciding with the universalizing powers of self-reflexive reason. So it was a strategic thing, and I think that there's no coincidence that it coincided, at least it, it was kind of a correlative to the uh, colonial expeditions, because it allowed people to justify their, you know, expropriation of land, they're taking people as slaves, their exploitation of resources, anything like that, 
becomes a lot easier when you're able to set yourself being a human as the highest possible form of being or the highest standard and everything else is being something that is unworthy and because it doesn't fall into that category you're not inflicting harm on someone that could you know should be receiving the same kind of uh, treatment as you but is actually lesser than you and of course well of course as Bray makes clear this is really the realization of a kind of Hegelian dialectical formulation of the maintenance between there being a self and an other right where embedded within the very logic of humanism was an exclusion was um, an exclusion of an other a kind of indeterminate other but that you know now we can look back and say well it was you know these people uh, that that were affected that was wholly necessary for the structuration or for the creation of an of a self the creation of a kind of in-group from which the out-group could be opposed or as she says, this Eurocentric paradigm implies the dialectics of self and other, and the binary logic of identity and otherness as respectively the motor for and the cultural logic of universal humanism. So that oh, oops. So there's a distinction to be made between post-humanism and anti-humanism, and it, it's pretty apparent in their terms. So post-humanism is considering what comes after the formation of this humanist character as it was conceived in the you know. 17th 18th 19th centuries and then anti-humanism is one is you know strictly opposing that previous formulation which might even posit you know a, a return to something pre uh, previous or the development of something new signaling the development of another post-humanism but as far as a kind of methodological stance or um i guess a, a point of departure anti-humanism and post-humanism find their uh find their differences a posteriori Right, so in their being, you know, different from one another, or by their how they present themselves. So the forms of anti-humanism that came about um, are, you know, are kind of difficult to to locate. So, for instance, there were attempts that uh, to oppose humanism because of it, the recognition that humanism was really a veiled uh, meninism, you know, white meninism, white European meninism, specifically. Uh, so that um, some of the oppositions that develop from that, and the example that Bredotti gives is that of uh, Simone de Beauvoir and her uh, female Vitruvian, or Vitruvian female, sorry, which is the exact same thing as a Vitruvian man, just just with a woman instead. To which Bredotti says, "Yeah, you know that that was very a very important move, but it still relies on the same kind of tenets of." of humanism that it seeks to oppose so it consolidates an identity for women which now especially when we have a growing knowledge of things like uh, things of gender queer people and trans people um, the cis women that are represented by this kind of vitruvian female form an in-group in and of itself that opposes those other non-conforming identities that, that that stand outside of it or that ostensibly stand outside of it so she says these are based, that is the Vitruvian female or the feminist resistance to uh, this kind of humanism. These are based on the radical critique of masculinist universalism, but are still dependent on a form of activist and equally and equality minded humanism. So it doesn't stop at feminism, however. Bredotti recognizes that in Marxism as well, which is highly the case, Marxism is Marx's work is riddled with a human, um, a kind of arrogant humanism. 
But as she says, Marxism, under the cover of a master theory of historical materialism, continued to define the subject of European thought as unitary and hegemonic, and to assign him, the gender is no coincidence, a royal place as the motor of human history. So that, you know, there are a number of reasons for this. Marxism relies very heavily, on, you know, relying on a kind of Hegelian formulation, works, uh, is very heavily tied to a kind of binary logic in almost all, all forms. Um, and, you know, Marx is also an anti-humanist in, in some ways. We shouldn't discount that. But this, the logic surreptitiously comes back and back, comes back over and over again and sneaks into his work. So an, an interesting debate kind of arises at the in the postmodern turn, right? So I use the term postmodern kind of reluctantly because, you know, the thinkers we call postmodern, very few of them actually took on that title or, or under even understood what it meant. Um, so bear with me. Uh, but the kind of postmodern thinkers, uh, an interesting thing happened there because they were, um, I guess, lamenting the subject altogether. They were really trying to tear down the idea of a kind of transcendental subjectivity. Now, this is very much apparent in Deleuze and Guattari's work, especially A Thousand Plateaus, where, you know, they're trying to rid the human of the face or of their face, of their kind of subject, of their identity. Um, now, this opened up uh, a kind of a, an interesting point of contention among some post-colonial thinkers, notably Gayatri Spivak, who takes Deleuze and Guattari and then Foucault to task in her book, uh, Can the Subaltern Speak? So um, Spivak's argument is that it's all well and good for these, you know, French white guys to be saying, hey, it's very important to do away with subjectivity and do away with identity. Uh, she says that that's great that you can do that. But for many post-colonized uh, peoples who are still colonized or existing in air quotes, post-colonial uh, existence, they don't get that, uh, they don't have that luxury to just do away with their identity. Not only uh, that, but if they could, they probably wouldn't because there was an identity stripped from them. So if you live in a very comfortable world where you can just easily shed your identity off, then, you know, good on you, do what you want. Uh, but it's not so simple as to say that that is what we must do to oppose humanism. So that was an interesting debate that kind of came about. And there's a little more to it, and I think I'll get into it with my own critique of this post-humanist stuff, at least Bradotti's brand of it, uh, later on. But even the idea of tearing apart subjectivity, as Deleuze and Guattari kind of put forth, um, is in itself an extension of subjectivity. And there are some wonderful uh, thinkers, I think of... Uh, Darlene Manning, for one, who just finished her dissertation not long ago, makes makes a very strong case for that, that it requires a certain degree of subjectivity to do away with one's subjectivity. So, but we'll get into that later. So kind of setting the stage for all these different, or, you know, establishing all these different kind of oppositional uh, politics to humanism, Bredody then proceeds to consider how she will do it. So it's just one of the other thinkers that she points to. She thinks of Freud, for instance. Uh, and Freud, who says, uh, perhaps surprisingly, and this I, I learned this from this book, hopefully it's true, 
Bredody says that Freud was one of the first critical thinkers to warn us against the fanatical atheism of the supporters of scientific reason. So Bredody is, you know, calling upon Freud in this way to take at to take aim at science as being one of those um, ideological formulations or ideological things that operates to maintain a kind of humanistic or, or a humanism that is intent on maintaining various uh, ideological tenets from, you know, the boogie word like logocentrism or, you know, scientific rationality or reason or anything like that. So she says as a kind of semantic turn of phrase or kind of semantic twist that to oppose humanism with a kind of anti-humanism, that, um, that battle will be won when a post-humanism has been realized. So post-humanism, she says, is the historical moment that marks the end of the opposition between humanism and anti-humanism and traces a different discursive framework, looking more affirmatively towards new alternatives. So um, I think it's important to note that there are other kinds of post-humanism. For instance, non-humanism, which um, is not post-humanism, but just as a, you know, to build into it, uh, that is a whole other field that I don't know a lot about. So that I've, that's why I've been opposing that a little bit. But th there isn't much talk of it in this book, interestingly enough, probably because it's just interested in post-humanism, but it seems as though it would have been interesting to consider. Anyways, I digress. So the task of post-humanism, or what post-humanism has to do, I guess it's task then, for Bredody, is to renunciate the human, while not crying for the, you know, that we're existing in the crisis of man, as she, as she writes, or that, you know, this marks a bad thing. Uh, rather, post-humanism must refuse to mirror the same tenets of humanism that it sought to oppose. So, you know, I'm using this kind of Baudrillardian language, the mirroring thing, um, because that is really important. You know, if you just do the same thing you sought to oppose, or you seek to oppose, you are doing very little for the actual cause. So one way that this can really come about, and she suggests that this is a postmodern phenomenon, uh, is the entrance of various voices into the public sphere, right? From women to other marginalized communities, um, uh, racialized bodies, you know, you, you name it. Um, people that enter the public sphere and turn the tides as to what constitutes, you know, proper speaking, proper, proper language, proper narratives, proper uh, epistemological understandings about anything, um, and that throw wrench into the humanist narrative, effectively destabilizing it totally. So this is one of the problems that might someone might um, notice with people who attach heavily to identity politics because that serves to ground another fixed identity that people can cling on to and that maintains a kind of uh, fixed groups, fixed identities that allow very little mobilization and that by being fixed, by not being fluid, um, are simply an extension of the Eurocentric logic of kind of uh, compartmentalization or of coding or of organization. Now, with that being said, there has to have been something tying groups of people together to some extent to allow for different narratives to come to exist, right? Because if 
there were there was no such thing as identities, then people wouldn't have any kind of narratives to oppose the human humanism one with. And, you know, it would follow then that the humanism humanism model wouldn't have developed at all because uh, there wouldn't have been the ties necessary to create it. Uh, it's, so when Bredodi is challenging this idea of subjectivity or challenging the people that oppose humanism with another kind of humanism or another kind of subjectivity, she says that there, there, there's still the, the remnants of something there, which is necessary, she says, for things like, um, or for issues, she says, such as norms and values, forms of community bonding, and social belongings, as well as questions of political governance, both assume and require a notion of the subject. Critical post-human thought wants to reassemble a discursive community out of the different fragmented contemporary strands of post-humanism. So what this essentially amounts to is um, grasping for her the creative potential of the post-humanism, of the post-human, without it being kind of um, capitalization of that potential, right? So within this logic, and this is one of the critiques I would have of this, uh, which she's very careful not to do. Whether or not she's fully uh, successful would be something I'd like to hear more about if someone was, at, you know, had any ideas. Um, but when we frame the discussion around potential or around productivity or power of a kind of post-human figure, I wonder if that is even the language used around that is not an extension of the logic of late capitalism, where it's rendering. Um, something that would otherwise pose a threat to it, productive for it. So as she says, once again, kind of towing the line between um, postmodernism and the kind of humanism that it purports to oppose or the subjectivities it purports to oppose, um, Bredodi says that this view rejects individualism but also asserts an equally strong distance from relativism or nihilistic defeatism. So, the, you know, those kind of straw man arguments against postmodernists, which, you know, take her on good faith here and or, you know, take her at her word. Um, so with that being said, it's important to understand that we're crafting out a kind of in-between uh, the postmodern type movements or the post-structuralist critiques and those of, you know, the humanism or the anti-humanism implicit and still humanist works like the feminists like Simone de Beauvoir and other other thinkers like that. I hope that idea was clear. I, yeah. So the subjectivity that would form in the post-human era or with the post-humanism or within post-humanism would be one that is an extension of um, or that she says transposes hybridity, nomadism, diasporas and creolization processes in, into means of a regrounding claims to subjectivity, connections, and community among subjects of the human and the non-human kind. So she follows up this idea by suggesting that the human or the post-humanism, oh my god, or the post-human is not linguistic. She says that it's a very material thing, right? So the post-human is not simply a kind of uh, object of fascination for cultural studies or for, um, you know, kind of literary theory or something like that, or structuralist or post-structuralist thought. It is how she says, um, as a materialist and vitalist, it is embodied and embedded. 
firmly located somewhere according to the feminist politics of location, which I, she says she stressed throughout the chapter. So that's another, you know, important thing to hold on to. All right, so now chapter two, thinking about anthropocentrism. So anthropocentrism being um, the um, high esteem that humans have or that are regarded as anthro being, you know, human and procentrism centered around, centered around human knowledge and human beings. Now for, you know, probably a better discussion of this whole question of anthropocentrism and the animal, there's all, also, there's, um, you know, Derrida's book, The Animal, Therefore I Am, but also Carrie Wolf's uh, Derridian uh, posthumanism, what is posthumanism, which I hope to do at some point here as well. Uh, but before she, uh, Bradody gets into this, really this question of the posthuman or, or of the, the animal or anthropocentrism, I want to consider one little passage she gives us here, <laughs> which, yeah, being rather technophilic myself, I am quite upbeat. I will always side firmly with the liberatory and even transgressive potential of these technologies against those who attempt to index them to their, to either a predictable conservative profile or to a profit-oriented system that fosters and inflates individualism. So that's really kind of pie-in-the-sky optimism of technological uh, development for a number of reasons, like does technology determine these kinds of beliefs? I think that to some extent they do. Technology can be, let's just say I'm a little bit um, suspicious of her optimism. It seems a little naive or a little careless. Not to say it's not true, but it's just that kind of blind willingness to accept it that I'm, you know, without really uh, working through that I'm concerned about. But, you know, I move on here. So the thing that opposes anthropocentrism is what she calls the zoe. So the zoe being the vital force of life, which is for her strictly non-human. So zoe, Z-O-E. I think I'm pronouncing that right. So she says, post-anthropocentrism is marked by the emergence of the politics of life itself. Life, far from being codified as the exclusive property or the unalienable right of one species, the human, over all others, or of being sacralized as a pre-established given, is posited as process, interactive and open-ended. So the task for Bredodi is to wrest Zoe from the clutches of advanced capitalism that turn it into profit, that turn, you know, uh, all things pertaining to a kind of natural human essence into something it can earn money off of. So we must be careful because she says that under advanced capitalism, we may see something resembling a kind of post-anthropomorphism, anthropocentrism, oh my God, where she says that the global economy is anthropocentric in that it ultimately unifies all species under the imperative of the market and its successes threaten the sustainability of our planet as a whole. So we have to be careful not to get tricked into believing we've entered this phase. And, uh, you know, this is, there's so many examples of this, like people caring about um, the exploitation of animals and and all this, obviously not a good thing. Um, But you question to what extent people's faith in, you know, animal care or something like that is not simply an extension of that same logic that seeks to maintain the existence of kind of 
supposed natural zones of being that really just enforce human superiority, right? We're like coming in as the human savior for these these animals. Now, with that, of course, with that being said, like these things, it's better to do that than nothing at all. But it's important to keep keep in mind the extent to which our very projects of um, you know rehabilitation for otherness is not simply reinscribing that same oppressive logic. So the post-human for Bredoti, one model of it is this thing called the becoming animal. So this is coming out of Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateaus. The idea of the becoming animal always posits a deterritorialization of the thing becoming into the already deterritorialized object of becoming. Okay. So and it's it's hard to talk about Deleuze and Guattari like this because, you know, you could bring up one passage that contradicts another, which is, you know, one of the rhizomatic characters of it. Uh, so I'm just going to try and give like a succinct analysis of it um, or succinct kind of presentation of it. So the idea of becoming is an idea that seeks to dis- or, uh, destabilize the idea of a, of a fixed identity or subjectivity by always positioning the, the subject into a position of becoming. Now, becoming implies or it posits the um, kind of leaving oneself behind in favor of something else, okay? So the becoming animal, the animal is a very good figure for this because the animal is, you know, often deterritorialized. The, the animal is often indeterminate, really is the word I should say. Now, to kind of question myself, uh, it would seem as though the animal is also an odd choice. And I'm taking from Baudrillard here, who has this one uh, phrase. He says that it's kind of ironic that Deleuze and Guattari are fascinated with this deterritorialized animal because animals are the territorialized beings par excellence. They are the ones that stick to a territory. They stick to a place. They stick to an identity. But with that being said, this kind of process of becoming is meant to take someone outside of themselves into something other. So to kind of anticipate this possible critique, Bredotti suggests that the, the animal is the creature that is opposed to hierarchization, where there is a kind of singularity achieved, a kind of disappearance into their being that doesn't, <laughs> and it's because I have so many problems with it, so it's, it's difficult for me to present without being biased. Um, but the idea is that the animal is the thing that opposes hierarchies, right? So you could still have identities, you could still have territorializations, but hierarchies are is really where things get, you know, messed up. So for her, how she says it, is that the vitality of their bond, that is, Zoe egalitarianism between humans and animals, the vitality of their bond is based on sharing this planet, territory, or environment on terms that are no longer so clearly hierarchical nor self-evident. The vital interconnection of po- this vital interconnection posits a qualitative shift of the relationship away from speciesism and towards an ethical appreciation of what bodies, human and animal and others can do. You know, to kind of lay my cards out on the table, my, my thesis was titled The Mirror of Humanism. And that's why I I don't I don't agree with a lot of post-humanism stuff. 
uh, even though I can sympathize with it. So, you know, I should have said this earlier, but I'm critical of this stuff. So that's why it's it's tricky for me to, uh, you know, not be, you know, bad or not take it on good faith. So of this kind of becoming animal, she makes a very good point that within that process, a new humanism can emerge. So in this cross-species embrace, humanism is actually being reinstated uncritically under the aegis of species egalitarianism. So in very much the same way as Bredodi cautions that these types of post-human characters can be uh, co-opted by capitalist enterprise, the same thing can be said of this human-animal relationship, where this zoe egalitarianism can be a very problematic thing, or the term that Kerry Wolf uses when he's doing the, sim- the same thing, kind of questioning whether or not his project might do the same kind of violence. He says that, is it simply an anim- animal welfareism? Like, are we simply, you know, departing from the axiom that there is a human and an animal, and there is a difference between the two, uh, by framing it in that way, even from the get-go, does that already presuppose a sort of distinction that is part of a humanist project, which is always important to consider. So the becoming, the project of becoming does not stop with animals, however. There are a number of other possibilities of becoming. As she goes through here, there's becoming Earth, becoming machine, and, and so on. So, And these all represent something of a different possibility for the human by being positioned against something else that it can then become. So I'll focus here for the sake of time because I'd like to get through this. Uh, the the posthumanism or the posthuman is human as a becoming machine. So becoming machine is certainly taking from Anti-Oedipus. So in the first few pages of Anti-Oedipus, for those that don't know, you know, it'd be cool to check out. Um, Deleuze and Guattari make the case that something like libidinal desire is not located in the recesses of the human mind. In fact, it's kind of it's it's very material in a very odd way right so they open up this whole kind of like um not really a new like this kind of new nomenclature to understand how bodies work where you you know all all your assemblages all your parts are are machines that work in some kind of functional way and that allow certain you know pleasurable things to occur i haven't finished the book yet so i don't i don't know if i'm characterizing it well here uh, but what it does, or their suggestion, is that um, possibility or human possibilities within the very understanding of people as like machines are being made up of kind of machinic assemblages, which those two terms aren't the exact same, or they don't really go together like that, as they make clear in A Thousand Plateaus, but I hope the point got across here. So as she says, pointing to Deleuze, For Deleuze, this is linked to the project of releasing human embodiment from its indexation on socialized productivity to become bodies without organs. That is to say, without organized efficiency. So, you know, we can think of it in the way that I laid out, where the human is made up of these machines, you know, not organs, but kind of um, non-life-like machines. But we could also relate it to the idea of a machine that exists in the world, a machine like, you know, the you'd see in a factory or something that kind of disappears into its own processes without being you know burdened by its uh, maintenance of oneself or the belief in a kind of uh, naturalness or biological determinism that determines its being 
So that this characteristic is taken really from Guattari, at least how, how Bredotti frames it, where the machine, the one I just kind of illustrated, uh, working as a kind of autopoietic uh, structure. So autopoietic being that idea that it's kind of a closed circuit is the term I think Carrie Wolf uses, a closed circuit that relies and kind of is able to keep going based on what exists within that circuit. So another name for subjectivity, according to Guattari, is autopoietic subjectivation, or self-styling, and it accounts both for living organisms, humans, humans as self-organizing systems, and also for inorganic matter, the machines. So we can see here how that, you know, this becoming machine is something that might be a good thing for this human, post-human thing. So now we enter into a kind of uh, semantic move or kind of lexical turn, incorporating this idea of transness to everything. So we enter the transpolitical, the transhistorical, the transcapital as being the things that oppose those uh, initiatory or initial identity markers. So in terms of feminist politics, for instance, she says that this means we need to rethink sexuality without genders, starting from a vitalist return to the polymorphous and, according to Freud, ironically, perverse in the sense of playful and non-reproductive structure of human sexuality. So kind of um, breaking down the barriers of gender in favor of kind of the transgender, which in these kind of critical accounts just uses this term as some kind of like romantic, you know, thing that people can just put on as though it's not uh, a category in itself, which obviously not everyone in that category subscribes to it being a category. But, you know, with the, that being said, uh, it's, it's still a little problematic how it's framed here. And people certainly, I know Baudrillard does this, it's unclear as to whether or not he applauds this move or if he, you know, he's doing it in a very bad way, kind of romanticizing it as though it's... Um, not a real thing like it's a fairy tale like thing but now we know it's very real so now moving into chapter three uh we get into this discussion about death and dying and how do these things play a role in or life beyond death um how do these things play a role in posthumanism? so bradotti says that this idea of zoe isn't necessarily strictly limited to this idea of life like of living so she says, um, in an argument about life that constitutes the perfect counterpart of the idea of Zoe as a posthuman continuum, I propose to look more closely at Thanatos, so Thanatos being the death driver, the death, death instinct, and to necropolitics, so death, politics of death, as a way of constructing an affirmative posthuman, post-human theory of death. I think that a conceptual shift towards matter-realist vitalism grounded in ontological monism, can assist us in this project of rethinking death and more mortality in a contemporary biomediated context. So politically, we need to assess the advantages of the politics of vital affirmation. So I will now read another kind of lengthy passage that kind of captures this. Well, what, what is she talking about in relation to death and Zoe and the post-human so she says that the point is that life slash zoe can be a threatening force as well as a generative one. A great deal of health and environmental concerns as well as geopolitical issues simply blur the distinction between life and death. In the era of biogenetic capitalism and nature culture continuum, zoe has become an infrahuman force 
and all the attention is now drawn to the emergency of disappearing nature. For instance, the public discourse about environmental catastrophes or natural disasters, the Fukushima nuclear plant and the Japanese tsunami, the Australian bushfires, Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans, etc., accomplishes a significant double bind. It expresses a new ecological awareness while reinserting the distinction between nature and culture. As Protevi argues, this results in the paradoxical renaturalization of our biotechnologically mediated environment. The geopolitical forces are simultaneously renaturalized and subjected to the old hierarchical power relations determined by the dominant politics of the anthropomorphic subject. Which is, I, I think, a very interesting point, because in the age of the post-humanist, if, if we can say we've entered it, um, it seems as though we're always being cast back into this system with all the, you know, terrible things that come out of it, right? Because if post-humanism has a very fine connection to, or a very clear connection to late capitalism and the harms that that's doing to the world, it seems as though we're always at risk of being re-territorialized to a kind of natural apparatus that was always already a construction and an oppressive construction uh, at that. So if that is the case, that we entered a post-humanism that is highly predicated on late capitalism and the other things that capitalism um, kind of posits, then it would seem as though the measurement of one's ability to be an active agent in this world, i.e. a post-human agent, because it's directly tied to a kind of neoliberal framework, or at least it has been, it could have been perhaps co-opted by that framework, then to measure one's ability to engage in that practice is to measure essentially their destructiveness because of the destructiveness of late capitalism. So in that way, we have to call into question the, you know, these forms of violence that are maintained. So the way that Bredotti frames it is as follows. The evolution of gender roles towards a more egalitarian participation by both sexes in the business of killing is one of the most problematic aspects of contemporary gender politics. This can be summarized as the, as the shift from the universal human rights stance of the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo to the brutal interventionism of the Chechnya war widows, pregnant female suicide bombers, and the growing role of women in the military, humanism of human, humanitarian wars. So really just criticizing, you know, liberal feminist practice that sees, you know, women's equality coming about by having women occupy more oppressive roles. So she says that this is very important to consider when we're considering this posthuman figure. So although she frames the posthuman as being something that relies heavily on Zoe, or life, we all must also question to what extent it relies on death, you know, not necessarily its own death, but the death of others, while always kind of presupposing its own death, how it's always on the horizon. So this is uh, kind of a, her jab at Foucault's consideration of biopolitics. So Foucault's consideration of biopolitics really kind of worked out in the first volume of the history of sexuality, which I've done on here at some point. So if that's something you're interested in. Um, but biopolitics is that turn that sees not power conducted by inflicting harm on people, but by maintaining life. Right, and then you enter the stage of populations, of race, apparently, um, and these other forms of control that seeks to maintain authority by essentially maintaining the autonomy of, of people. 
So what is important with this in within this dynamic for Braidoti is to con- is to uh, not undermine the role of death, where this often presupposes, or as she says in quoting Clo or Cloth, it permits the healthy life of some populations to necessitate the death of others, marked as nature's degenerate or unhealthy ones. So within the whole domain of biopolitics, so the term like life politics, um, who you know, is, is, is allowed life? Who is allowed in that framework? And then who is left to die? So in this framework, death is always construed as something bad, which, you know, it, it obviously it sucks. <laughs> but Bredotti wants to rethink it. What she says is that we need to rethink death, the ultimate subtraction, as another phase in a generative process, as I will argue in the second half of this chapter, yada, yada, yada. Too bad that the relentless generative powers, so its productive powers, of death require the suppression of that which is the nearest and dearest to me, namely myself. Ha ha ha. So without respecting death, and I, I hope I'm getting her right about this. I'm, I'm pretty sure I am, but it, at times it's not always clear how she where she stands here. Uh, but with death being a thing that is, you know, feared and excluded and essentially conjured away in the biopolitical age, it can then be used to better control the other. It can then be used as something that exists solely for the other. So while biopolitics, and this is Foucault's point as well, while biopolitics, you know, exists to maintain populations and to maintain life, it is able to do this by, you know, maintaining the idea of death and maintaining the exercise of death on other populations. So, and here I'll read a kind of a long, kind of a long quote again. So the post-Cold War world has not seen only a dramatic increase in warfare, but also a profound transformation of the practice of war as such. New forms of warfare entail simultaneously the breathtaking efficiency of intelligent, unmanned technological weaponry on the one hand, and the rawness of dismembered and humiliated human bodies on the other. This is exemplified by Gaddafi's undignified end, which I invoked uh, in the third vignette of the introduction. Post-human wars breed new forms of inhumanity, and that point is crucial. The implications of this approach to necropower are radical. It is not up to the rationality of the law and the universalism of moral values to structure the exercise of power, but rather the unleashing of the unrestricted sovereign right to kill, maim, rape, and destroy the life of others. This political economy structures the attribution of different degrees of humanity according to hierarchies that are disengaged from the old dialectics and unhinged from biopolitical logic. They fulfill instead a more instrumental, narrow logic of opportunistic exploitation of the life in you, which is generic and not only individual. So then she continues, contemporary necropolitics has taken the politics of death on a global, regional scale. So death in this in this world, and this is, you know, Baudrillard's point in a symbolic exchange in death, becomes something almost you know, banal. We we lost our connection to death. It's no longer a thing that people can engage in in like a sacrificial manner or anything like that. It's no longer something that can be productive for civilization. It's something that we put away in hospitals and special designated areas. Uh, but then it's also something we can very easily exert onto others. You know, we have the as uh, she says here, you have unmanned. Uh, weapon systems like drones and whatnot that don't even demand human actors to be the ones committing the death. 
we have death machines to do that for us. Now that's only really possible when death is not considered something sacred in any way. And this isn't to romanticize a time when, you know, death was apparently sacred because not, you know, that was never a universal phenomenon. But what is certain, I think, and I think that Bredody gets at it here, is that there's something specific about our relationship to death today that allows mass scale things to happen, like the Holocaust or um, any of the other genocides to have occurred. Uh, so like, I think it was Stalin's thing, you know, a death is a tragedy and a million deaths is a statistic. So this necropolitical situation extends beyond death itself and it sees the control or the kind of extension of biopolitical control in a very negative way onto others. So this comes out in the form of border control and immigra of immigration and the smuggling of people is just two examples. So in the post-human formulation, because it is an extension or works alongside uh, the same kind of post-human developments, it has a connection to um, what Bredotti says, uh, has a connection to, or death is also a creative synthesis of flows, energies, and perpetual becoming, where death is always, by being a very mysterious field, you know, it's always been a concern for humans, you know, what death means, what comes after it, or, or anything like that. Um, it has a very kind of mystical quality. It's very, very um, mysterious to us, and for that reason, it houses a kind of power. So as she goes on to say, uh, uh, Deleuze suggests that to make sense of death, we need an unconventional approach that rests on a preliminary and fundamental distinction between personal and impersonal death. The former is linked to the suppression of the individualized ego, so already we're seeing a kind of desubjectification there. The latter is beyond the ego, a death that is always ahead of me, in its being kind of a mysterious, unrecognizable thing and marks the extreme threshold of my powers to become. So again, we see this logic of becoming, you know, that resting of the self away from oneself. But then we get a rather enigmatic thing that Bredotti does here. She says that death is not uh, a kind of teleological formulation. It doesn't just exist at the end of life. Rather, it is the event that has always already taken place at the level of consciousness. As an individual occurrence, it will come in, in the form of the physical extinction of the body, but as event, in the sense of the awareness of finitude, of the interrupted flow of my being there, death has already taken place. So this really enigmatic passage, it's difficult for me to grasp because it, you know, it's hard to get. Uh, and she continues that the time of death is really a, it doesn't correspond to the logic of chronos, so chrono, chronology, but is more appropriately aeonic, or corresponds to the aeon which she says is perpetual becoming. So in its being an enigma, uh, it, it doesn't have a place, right? It exists everywhere at every time. So we are in a state of perpetual death, right? Whether it be in the form of decay, whether it be in the process of becoming, because in order to become, you must mark a death of some part of yourself. It is always with us, yet it comes up in flares. So it comes and goes, hence it's kind of enigmatic character which comes to one of the big claims of this book, that one of the things that we most truly cherish, so what we humans truly yearn for, is to disappear by merging into the generative flow of becoming, the precondition for which is the loss, disappearance, and disruption of the atomized individual self, which we could also insert in there, 
the death of that self. So now we'll move here into the last chapter, chapter four. So thinking about life beyond theory, what does that look like? Or what does it mean for the humanities in the age of the post-human and human? You know, humanities priding itself on liberal kind of um, enlightenment thinking. The age of the post-human strongly resists that or opposes it at least. And quite simply, Bredotti says that the humanities must undergo the exact same process. They must become post-humanities, right, where they take on this kind of other worldliness. So one of the things I might think of, like the call for professors or teachers to uh, decolonize their syllabi, you know, how many courses have I taken where, you know, the syllabus is made of 95% white guys, white European guys. It's like, is this a coincidence? Do they just know the world better? Absolutely not. But these are the types of knowledges we come to, we have come to appreciate. So she then calls for the humanities to take on a kind of non-linear uh, persona or personality or character that is more in line with the kind of rhizomatic approach. So rhizomatic being that indeterminate kind of flowing in all directions thing. Uh, so like it's, it seems a little bit like pie in the sky, right? A little bit hopeful, uh, but you know, it's what we have. And for anyone that read this book or has read this book or intends to read it, should know that it's uh it's very it's repetitive and every chapter starts with like what i'm going to do in this chapter and it ends with what i've done in this chapter so it's a very kind of strictly clearly written thing that's very well mapped out and thought out but um you know there's not i feel like the content gets lost right it, it like it could be a hundred page book without all the kind of added uh reiterations so for that reason i'm, I'm really just kind of skimming through it so with that being said, there are still many other actors, many other players in this game that in this game, in this book that I don't give a lot of attention to, like Catherine Hales, for for example, and a number of other thinkers. Just because it would take so long. So I definitely recommend people read it, but you know, should be borne in mind that it's a pretty repetitive book. So the humanities for that for everything we've been saying while there is an attempt in the humanities to make it more like scientific, right? Uh, the kind of entrance of research methods and methodology and quantitative stuff into humanities, which, you know, it's been pretty good to ward that off, but it's always a possibility. Bredotti says that it, we have to be careful that this kind of scientific, linear, proper uh, agenda does not completely seep into the humanities and that humanities maintain something of their own enigmatic position while doing taking themselves apart in favor of kind of post-humanities uh, character. So then we enter the conclusion, which is really just a repetition, kind of a recap of everything that she'd gone through. But I want to focus on one thing, and this is where I <laughs> have the biggest problem with this. The last line of the book goes as follows. It is one of the, or actually I go back a little further. This is a new situation we find ourselves in, the imminent here and now of a post-human planet. It is one of the possible worlds we have made for ourselves, and insofar as it is the result of our joint efforts and collective imaginings, it is quite simply the best of all post-human worlds. Uh, it, excuse the noise. Ending on that phrase or that 
sentiment made me want to rip my hair out when I read this. Made me want to throw chairs because it's the same. You know, there are kind of hints of this all throughout the book that there's this kind of it seems like a blind willingness to just go with the flow, to kind of adopt any sort of method that promises, no matter how sneakily it's doing this or how it's you know subtly affirming the same oppressive logic that it seeks to challenge uh there's a willingness to go with that so when she says that we are living in the best of all post-human worlds i you know all you have to turn on the news like it's absurd as though it couldn't be better or as though it couldn't have become better if you know there were more organized efforts to oppose it or oppose the bad things so that's really what's going on there like i like i said there you know there's a lot i kind of skip over because i want you know these videos to be more concise to be um to really get to the core of what's going on and not spend too much time on little subtle details all the while providing you know important contextual stuff like the other thinkers like Deleuze and Foucault and all the, these types of people. But for that, on that note, if anyone made it to the end, like, let me know what you thought. If there's anything I excluded, or if you have any problem with what I said, I'd love to hear it. But you know how to do all that. So for now, 